You may not have heard of Locum Tenems or CompHealth as the very first locums agency formed to help physicians find short-term jobs. Locum Tenems can be very beneficial in reducing the number of bureaucratic tasks required while adding flexibility to your career, even while keeping your permanent position. And with CompHealth, it's a truly personalized experience that focuses on you and your skills, specialty, and goals. You can find jobs close to home, and CompHealth will even help you find your next full-time job, too. Explore Locum Tenem's job now at CompHealth.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our citation classics, and this one in particular are sports citation classics. And if this is your first time listening to this podcast, this is a segment of the podcast where we just try to go over the high-yield articles over a certain topic in the past 15 to 20 years or kind of the most cited articles really just to kind of give learners an idea of what articles are being read and some important studies that are out there to read and this one we're going to be going over again sports but in particular we're going to be going over posterior lateral corner injuries and this is headed by our sports team our sports citation classics team headed by dr tucker peabody we also have dr ehab we have Tyler Thorne, also a doctor. <laughs> we have Tariq, one of our med school, uh, one of our medical students, as well as myself. I'm on this team. Not all of us are here for this episode today, but they did a great job going through these articles. And if you haven't already, go and check out the YouTube channel. If you'd like to see some of the charts and some of the different things that we're talking about, the link to the YouTube video is in this description. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Nailed It Ortho Sports Citation Classic. We're here with another uh, podcast here talking about poster lateral corner injuries. Uh, I'm Tucker Peabody. I'm one of a, a second-year resident out of Columbus, Ohio. The other guys, you want to introduce yourselves? Yeah, my name is Ehab, one of the second-year residents out of the University of Pittsburgh. I'm Tarek, uh, M4 at UMKC from Kansas City. All right. We have two other guys, part of the team, that are not able to join us. We're just going to go over their papers with us. So um, we're talking about posterolateral quarter injuries, a little bit of background information about these uh, commonly missed injuries, as well as different surgical uh, techniques for reconstruction. So, uh, Ehab, why don't you get us started? Awesome. Thanks, man. So, um, we're going to start this out a little bit differently just because we don't really talk about posterior lateral corner injuries as often as some of the other sports topics. So we'll start with a background and overview, and then we'll jump into some of the papers. So just quick epidemiology, um, uh, posterior lateral corner injuries represent seven to 16% knee ligamentous injuries. 28% uh, of them are actually isolated. Um, most of the time they're combined with cruciate ligament injuries. We see them more combined with PCL compared with ACL injuries. Um, it's important because when we look at causes of failure, we've talked about different causes of ACL reconstruction failure in some past podcasts, um, but missing posterior lateral corner injuries is actually a common cause of uh, reconstruction failure. So it's important to recognize these. Um, looking at mechanisms, so kind of what we look at for every knee ligamentous injury of contact and non-contact injuries, uh, thinking about the direction of the force. So this is going to be a blow to the anterior medial knee, putting stress on that posterior lateral corner, um, and then also a varus blow to a flex knee. Hyperextension injuries are big, as well as external rotation twisting injuries. And the big one to really watch out for is uh, knee dislocations, especially for multi-ligamentous injuries. 
so basic background in terms of anatomy. Um, so there are different static stabilizers of the knee, um, including the LCL, so the fibular collateral ligament, um, the popliteus tendon, and then the PFL, the popliofibular ligament. These uh, images on the right just demonstrate everything here. So good dissections. Um, uh, and I would encourage you all to look at uh, Dr. Chawla's paper actually on this because there's a lot of good images in that paper. Uh, secondary stabilizers of the knee, these are also super important to pay attention to. So lateral capsular thickening, um, the coronary and arcuate ligaments, um, you actually have the lateral gastroc tendon there, as well as um, the longitude of the biceps femoris and your IT band. And the image on the right, for those who can see it, um, it's a little bit of an older image, but it actually demonstrates this well. Um, just has all of the different uh, structures and how they lie in terms of layering. Uh, so biomechanically, the primary role of the posterior lateral corner is to serve as restraint against various forces on the knee, as well as posterior lateral rotation of the tibia. Um, secondarily, though, it stabilizes the anterior posterior tibiofemoral translation, um, and especially it does that in cruciate deficient knees. Uh, in terms of looking at how to evaluate for posterior lateral coronary injuries, starts with, as usual, history and physical. Um, the one thing that I wanted to mention here, which we mentioned before, for knee dislocations, um, just don't forget about the uh, evaluation of patients with knee dislocations. So we see these a lot, either in uh, traumatic accidents like car accidents or even football accidents, um, making sure that there's a good pulse, making sure that we're reducing things in a timely manner. Um, and making sure that after we reduce everything, that we still maintain good blood flow. Um, but moving on from there, making sure we have radiographs. So x-rays are always important here to obtain first, and then more advanced imaging would be an MRI to evaluate for soft tissue damage. Um, so in terms of physical exam, so uh, again, just thinking about the mechanism of the posterior lateral corner, we're going to try and stress everything here. So we'll do our various stress test. Um, that's on the left. The dial test, so the patient will be prone here and we'll have them moving into external rotation. If we have that ex increased external rotation, then we know we have damage to the PLC. And then the pivot shift, which is generally what we use um, in terms of uh, evaluating for ACL injuries, where we're in internal rotation in valgus. In this case, we'll actually do a reverse pivot shift. Um, we'll try and evaluate for a posterior lateral corner injury there. So they're starting flex and we're bringing them straight. Uh, there are different diagnoses and classification systems for posterior coronary injuries. Um, I think probably from an OICE and a board's perspective, these are probably more important to know. Um, the two that are seen here are the Finelli and Larson classification and the Houston classification. Um, for both of these, we're trying to see what the varus instability is, So, and then as well as um, external rotation stability. So for the Finelli and Larson classification, we're going to look at um, whether there's an increase in external rotation of the tibia. Um, and then that also combines it with some, with, um, varus, uh, instability as well. And then for the Houston classification, it's just looking at varus instability. Um, and we're evaluating whether there's a soft endpoint or not. That's essentially telling us, um, depending on how much varus instability there is, whether we have an intact PCL or, um, deficient PCL plus PLC injury. In terms of radiographs, so uh, doing the varus stress test under radiograph and then looking for lateral opening, and then the arcuate sign, just a fracture um, uh, that demonstrates that there is a, a posterior lateral corner injury. 
And then on MRI, um, so same thing. We're trying to evaluate to see if we have any fractures, any soft tissue injuries here. Um, so that we're just trying to figure out where exactly we are on the MRI. So on the left, um, we have coronal images and, and the two left images are coronal images. Uh, figure C is a sagittal image and then figure D is an axial image. So in all of these, we're trying to look towards the posterior lateral corner of the knee and evaluate for any fractures or any sort of ruptures there. Um, in general, and we'll talk a lot about these in the coming articles, but essentially the general treatment algorithm is to determine uh, A, how bad the injury is, and then B, what the alignment or the result in malalignment is. Um, and we also want to consider the chronicity of the injury. So in general, we talk about uh, acute injuries of the PLC being less than three weeks, chronic injuries being greater than three weeks. Um, and then we want to evaluate to see if this is an isolated injury or a combined injury. Um, and essentially for grade one injuries, so um, for those that have the least amount of various instability, we manage these in non-surgical management. As we'll come to talk about, there's question of whether we should be doing primary repairs or we should be adding reconstructions. And then when we are adding reconstructions, the idea is what sorts of um, what sorts of uh, uh, anatomic structures we want to reconstruct. So whether we want to include the popliteofibular ligament, the LCL, or both of them, um, depending on how much deformity we have. And then lastly, something we are, we're not quite talking about as much, but I think we'll start to see a little bit more of is um, whether we're adding osteotomies in because of malalignment. So that's enough for the background. Um, I'll push it over back to Tucker and he'll talk to us about a couple articles and then um, we'll come back from there. All right. So this next paper is a paper on JBJS in 2010 by Dr. LaProd. Um, looking at the outcomes of an anatomic uh, posterolateral knee reconstruction. So um, kind of just some quick background information on posterolateral coronary injuries. There's multiple um, surgical techniques that we we fix these, whether it's a, a reconstruction, um, allograft reinforcement, thermal bone block, transport, uh, there, there's multiple ways that we can reconstruct, reconstruct the posterolateral corner depending on what uh, structures injured. Prior to this paper, though, most of these um, reconstruction techniques were not anatomic in nature. Um, when we say anatomic, we're uh, saying that based off of the location of the our static uh, stabilizers, the LCL, the popliteus, and the popliteofibular ligament. So the hypothesis from this paper was that an anatomic uh, reconstruction will actually improve function and restore uh, your knee stability. Most uh, more so in various and external rotation stresses. <clears throat> and so they were looking at the subjective and objective outcomes in these patients that had a anatomic posterolateral corner reconstruction. So the patients that in this paper with, with the, how they were diagnosed on physical exam that an increased uh, various laxity at 30 degrees and then uh, external rotation at 30 degrees, which is uh, our dial test. There's a positive posterolateral drawer um and the subluxation uh, present on a reverse pivot shift <clears throat> some plain radiographs would also show um various knee uh, alignment as well and if that was the case that they underwent a biplanar uh, osteotomy to restore their uh, mechanical axis so <clears throat> the technique that was uh described by laprade this anatomic technique was a these a lateral hockey stick uh, incision they uh, visualize the attachment sites of the LCL, the popliteal fibular ligament, and they use the pin to place <clears throat> at the location of the LCL insertion 
to the popliteofibular ligament attachment. Um, on the tibial side, the posterior tibial popliteal solstice, uh, that's kind of where the, uh, the location of the musculotendinous junction of the popliteus muscle is. These is transtibial guide to drill a hole from anterior to posterior in the sulcus and then reamed uh, to uh, about seven millimeters. That's what the uh, tunnel uh, diameters are. On the femoral side for the attachment of the LCL and popliteus, it's measured at 18.5 millimeters apart. And remember that the LCL is proximal and posterior uh, in relation to the um, popliteus attachment site on the uh, lateral distal femur. <laughs> so these guide pins and reamed over the guide pins in two separate locations uh, measured out at 18.5 millimeters. After that was done, they reconstructed the ACL uh, if there's an ACL uh, injury present. Uh, from a graft, they used an Achilles tendon graft. They anchored the graft into the popliteal solstice to reconstruct the popliteus. The second graft that they used was for the LCL and the popliteal fibular ligament that was anchored proximally and posterior on the lateral femoral epicondyle. They passed that graft deep to the IT band and then through the fibular tunnel from uh, posterior medial. With the remaining graft medial to the fibula, they reconstructed the popliteal fibular ligament as well. And here's a quick diagram of demonstrating the uh, two graft anatomic uh, reconstruction technique. So you can see the uh, LCL graft uh, on the femur is proximal and posterior to the popliteus tendon, and those are measured at 18.5 millimeters apart. Um, what's important here is with using that two tunnel technique on the lateral femoral condyle. Um, Previously, prior to this anatomic reconstruction, only one tunnel was used for both of these graphs to repair the posterior lateral corner or reconstruct, excuse me. So the results over a five-year period that 64 patients underwent this posterior lateral corner anatomic reconstruction, their average age was younger at 32. Um, the time from the initial injury to the reconstruction was uh, on average 4.4 years. Uh, they had 84% follow-up at 4.3 years. 15 underwent a proximal tibial osteotomy due to varus malalignment. And then uh, 18 had an isolated uh, anatomic reconstruction. 22 had a, a concomitant ACL reconstruction. 14 had a PCL. And nine had a uh, PCL and ACL. And then one, unfortunately, had an ACL, MCL, PCL, and posterior lateral corner reconstruction all at once. So the outcomes, they used the modified Cincinnati score. That was at 65.7. Uh, at their follow-up, uh, the function subscore was around 34 points. Uh, the need, uh, the IKDC was at 62.6. So with those scores, they found no difference between um, the isolated reconstruction or the concurrent procedures. There was significant post-op improvement for various opening at 20 degrees, external rotation at 30 degrees, the reverse pivot shift, as well as a single leg hop. There were some complications that they noted in this paper, one just being a post-op infection, one being a transient comiperoneal nerve neuropraxia, three with recurrent posterior lateral knee instability, and four for hardware removal due to symptomatic hardware. So in conclusion, uh, the anatomic posterior lateral cord reconstruction shows significant improvement in knee stability in various and external rotation stresses. It is important to reconstruct the uh, LCL, popliteus tendon, as well as the popliteal fibular ligament. Um, there, there was no difference in outcomes with patients that had a primary posterior lateral corner reconstruction compared to those that had a 
prior osteotomy due to malalignment. There were some weaknesses in this paper. Um, most patients had a concurrent ligament uh, reconstruction uh, with a posterior lateral corner reconstruction. There was no uh, subjective scores measured preoperatively and postoperatively. And we have to take into account that this is only from one surgical, surgical technique, so there are going to be some biases present. I think it's a good article. I mean, one of the things we talked about before that I was just wondering, you know, getting your experience from, I know Tarek's still in, still in medical school, but if he's seen any, it'd be interesting. You know, we don't see a lot of these as residents and, you know, in the, I know some trauma surgeons will sometimes like do repairs. Um, but you know, a lot of times the sports guys are doing the reconstructions. How many of these have you actually seen Tucker? So I've seen two, I've seen, um, a true, uh, the Laprod anatomic uh, reconstruction technique with two graphs. And I saw a, a similar kind of variant with another sports surgeon. The biggest thing that they were uh, emphasizing was if you are doing the anatomic reconstruction is getting your, um, on the fit, on the femur, getting your uh, tunnel sites as anatomic as you can. Um, so <clears throat> one of the guys I worked with used uh, fluoro as well as, you know, measuring out the 18.5, um, uh, millimeter difference between the two tunnel sites. Um, but they're, they're a little, they're a little hairy, especially getting your fibula tunnel place just because you don't have a lot of bone stock there. And I think, uh, both times I've seen that there's been like an iatrogenic, uh, fracture. It was stable yeah. and didn't propagate, but just from putting in your, uh, interference screw, or you can potentially over ream and, uh, fracture through the fibula. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I, I have not seen any yet. Um, and I think it's interesting, you know, these numbers and as you'll see, you know, the Laprade papers tend to be the majority of what we see in the literature about posterior lateral corner injuries. And, you know, the numbers that they have are, uh, are crazy compared to what we usually see. And I just wonder what, you know, the learning curve for some of these procedures is, because as you're saying, I mean, it can get a little bit dicey with your tunnel placement, um, especially if you're combining like any other ligamentous injury. Uh, and I can't even imagine what it would look like if you're adding some sort of osteotomy. I mean, I've just never seen it before. So I wonder what really goes into like success for these. And like you said, they didn't have any preoperative or postoperative subjective scores, but it'd be nice to see maybe in some other papers, what, what people are reporting and how they're feeling after this in terms of their function. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you know, like I said, I've only seen two, one was a collegiate athlete. That was a sports related injury. And the other one was um, just due to a, uh, native, uh, knee dislocation just from like a low energy ground level fall. Um, yeah, it would be interesting to see kind of how these guys do and what's like their return to function long-term. Uh, in regards to that learning curve, I sort of, I haven't seen any of these of course, but, um, I did get to hear a lecture about it on one of my rotations and the two sports medicine stocks that were talking about it. We're saying that in their population, they really only did about two a year. That's those are the only times that they really came up. Um, one of them had done a fellowship out at Vail where they saw them a lot more mm -hmm. commonly, but for them, it was like, it was a case that they would read up on and really study up on before they did it the next day. Um, just cause it's, it's really rare. Um, didn't seem like they, they talked about the two tunnel technique quite a bit, but didn't seem like they ran into too many problems with it when they did it, but obviously their experience with it is also not that high. So it's definitely one of those cases that 
think de depends on your patient population, whether or not you're going to even see one. Yeah. And I think it is also, you know, to add to the difficulty, difficult nature of these, you know, reconstructive techniques, most of the time you're dealing with a multi-ligamentous knee. So you're doing an ACL, a PCL, possible MCL, meniscal uh, repair um, in the setting of these as well. At least those are the ones that I've seen have been these big multi-leg injuries. Um, so, and they weren't, um, and I don't think there's anything out there in the literature in regards to like staging these, um, whether or not you do post a lot of corner first or you do it all at once. Yeah, I, I haven't seen much, you know, before we move on, I just want to make sure because I, I was kind of looking through our slides. I know we talk a lot about um, the dial test and, I, and, you know, I kind of glossed over it a little bit, um, but just so we're all clear, especially for people who might be younger who are listening in. So the dial test, essentially, like we said, you're prone and you're evaluating for both evaluate, um, sorry, injury to the posterior lateral corner and the PCL. Um, so essentially, you are looking for more than 10 degrees of external look. Uh, rotation in the injured knee and you're doing it in two positions. So you're doing it first at 30 degrees of flexion, and then you're doing it at 90 degrees of flexion. Um, so essentially for people that have an isolated injury to the poster lateral corner, they have more than 10 degrees of external rotation, um, at, uh, 30 degrees of flexion, but not at 90 degrees of flexion. Um, and then for the PCL, uh, they have that more than 10 degrees of external rotation at 90 degrees of flexion, but not at 30 degrees of flexion. Um, and then a combined injury would be, uh, more than 10 degrees of external rotation at both of those. So just, I wanted to make sure we made that clear just because we glossed over it pretty quickly, but it's actually important for these uh, papers coming up. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go on to the next paper here. Um, this is another one, uh, by Dr. LaPrada out of JBJS is just the analysis uh, from a bi uh, in vitro biomechanical study for the anatomical posterolateral uh, corner knee reconstruction. So this is a, a biomechanical cadaveric study to assess the uh, static varus and external rotation stability for a two-graft anatomic reconstruction technique for the posterolateral corner. Uh, they hypothesized that the anatomic reconstruction would restore uh, static stability for varus and external rotational stresses. This is a little bit of background information. I know we already probably harped on this, but um, in the setting of posterior lateral corner injuries um, that can go missed, <clears throat> in the setting of multi-leg knees, you have increased forces on the ACL and PCL graft that will put you at increased risk for failure if you don't uh, treat these posterior lateral corner injuries. And yeah, if they're untreated, they can lead to graft failure uh, as high as like 40%. I think some papers have quoted. So the methods from this study was a cadaveric um, control and reconstructed specimens that were introduced to uh, various and external rotation forces at 0, 30, 60, 90 degrees of flexion. Um, they had three different conditions where these stresses were uh, performed. They had a, a normal uh, native knee with an intact posterior lateral corner. They had a uh, transected LCL, uh, popliteal tendon and popliteal fibular ligament to mimic a grade three posterior lateral corner injury. And then a reconstructed knee with an Achilles tendon autograft and bone, bone block graft. Uh, they use a five newton per meter uh, stress applied in both various and external rotations. And the surgical technique that they used was the one that we just discussed from the prior paper uh, from LaProd, the two tunnel anatomic reconstructive technique. <clears throat> so after they performed those reconstructions, they immediately 
uh, put the reconstructed knees under various and external rotation stresses. Uh, from a varus standpoint, there is uh, a significant difference in varus displacement at 30 degrees of flexion in the reconstructed knee, uh, comparing it to an intact uh, native knee. And what they attributed that to was possible loosening of the fibular fixation of the LCL with progression of the varus stresses. From an external rotational stress standpoint, there's no statistically significant difference between the reconstructed knee and the native knee uh, at all flexion angles. So prior to this paper, there's no reported uh, biomechanical studies for these posterior lateral corner reconstructive uh, techniques for the three main uh, static, static stabilizers. <clears throat> there is increased stability in external rotation of various stress in these reconstructed knees that has been uh, as similar to the intact native knee. Um, what they did note was that, you know, they were loading these reconstructed knees immediately after the procedure, which is clinically, you know, not what we're doing here. Most of the time, these patients are non, non-weight bearing for six weeks or so. So they wouldn't be undergoing those uh, high stresses immediately after fixation. Uh, they discussed the two-tunnel technique and how it provides more of an anatomic reconstruction compared to previous one-tunnel techniques on the femoral side. So big conclusion from this paper is that the anatomic reconstruction eliminated any external rotation laxity uh, in posterior corner reconstructions. For all the reconstructed knees, there was a measurable but non-significant increase in varus laxity. The only time they found an increase the, in varus that was statistically significant was at 30 degrees of flexion. There were some limitations to the study. It was an in vitro uh, you know, biomechanical cadaveric study. Uh, they did say that there was probable poor bone stock of these cadavers as most of the bone was uh, osteopenic in nature that could have affected the fibular tunnels resulting in increased varus laxity um, for your LCL fixation. Um, and like I said earlier, there were significant loads that were applied immediately after fixation, which is not uh, applicable to normal practice postoperatively. Yeah, I think this paper just goes in hand in hand with the last one showing the biomechanical um, outcomes of this anatomic reconstruction. Um, so. I really don't have much else to say. It kind of goes hand in hand with the other paper. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think else? that it's it's always important to consider these biomechanical studies. And I think the one thing that at least I've seen in the literature in terms of what Dr. LaProde and his group is really good at doing is that they have always, it seems like at least they do a good job of doing biomechanical studies that then lead into, you know, translational studies in the clinical setting. And they have the numbers to do it. Um, so I think... Um, this is just a good example. I mean, like you said, there are a lot of limitations here. I mean, there are always limitations using cadavers, um, like the, bo the bone stock, um, whether or not we're really, uh, simulating, um, real life loads or even like, um, just like real life scenarios in general. But I think in, uh, what, what this does show and what's important to consider is that, you know, the postural corner has like an important role for general like knee laxity um or like knee stability and i think that this just this does show that it's important to address it um when looking at um knee injuries in general um and you know i think that the clinical studies kind of show a little bit more in terms of how those reconstructions and even repairs as we'll see soon um do over time for patients, but these biomechanical studies are important to show just like, just to give a general sense of like what the, 
what these anatomic structures are doing um, for the knee. Uh, so I think this is a good example of that. Uh, and it's important to consider and put into context when we're looking at the clinical studies. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, so I'm actually going to go to Tarek's paper. So this is an analysis of failure in 57 consecutive posterior lateral operative procedures coming out of Cincinnati. Um, this was published in 2006 in the American Journal of Sports Medicine. Um, it's a bit of a different type of paper. Um, it focuses more on, uh, we can, we've talked about this background more than enough, I think. So, uh, but essentially uh, PLC, as we all know it um, by now, but we're looking at these 30 different cases and after their index operation had already happened, why they're failing. Um, and so this paper was sort of trying to just look at how to guide treatment for these PLC injuries between acute and chronic injuries. Um, but this study period happened over from 1983 to 2003. And so a lot of these procedures aren't really done anymore. Some of the ones that they chose to do um, that we'll talk about in a second. All right. So in terms of subjects, um, they all had injury to their PLC. They all had cruciates injured, whether it was the ACL, PCL, or both. Um, and then they all had operative treatment performed that failed to actually restore their normal knee anatomy. They were still subluxing some of them, and some of them even had some varus recurvatum. Um, they were organized into groups of abnormal versus severe abnormal based on their physical exam findings. So those that had that lateral joint opening that was from 6 to 10 millimeters um, were abnormal. Those ha that had more than 10 millimeters on uh, stress testing were severe abnormal. Um, same thing for external tibial rotation. They compared these to the contralateral side to make sure that they were um, correctly evaluating the patient's knees. Um, one of the big things to, that I mentioned earlier was these patients are from 1983 to 2003. Um, four of them only had their index procedure done at the home center, whereas the other 26 were done at another center. So what exactly was performed was not always apparent to the authors of the paper. And so from the 30 patients, we had 20 that were male, 10 that were female. Their mean age was 29. Um, 13 of them had acute injuries, and then 17 had um, chronic injuries which were anywhere from four months to 312 months from the actual initial injury. Um, they presented to the home center and the studying institution 17 months post-op on, post on average. Um, the authors then did physical exam, pivot shift, KT2000, drawer tests and radiographs to fully evaluate the patients and um, look at all their findings. And so in terms of results, uh, including the 30 index operations, there were 46 revisions done. Five of the patients were not revised. Um, four of them went on to have TKA instead because they had concomitant severe osteoarthritis and were indicated. And one of them actually opted to just avoid surgery altogether. Of those 46 revisions, 27 of them had failed revisions. And so in, to in total, this was 57 total failed procedures between revisions and the index operations. And so this table on the, uh, on the right shows just the breakdown of cruciates that were ruptured, um, the failure of the procedures, 
in terms of the cruciate ligaments and then um, whether the patients had varus alignment and um, even a few that got high tibial osteotomies. And then this table looks more closely at um, breaking it apart between the acute subgroup and the chronic subgroup. And so the big thing was just, there is a lot more revisions that occurred in the chronic subgroup, um, especially in non-anatomical graft reconstructions, which is sort of what this paper starts to get a hint towards. Um, so 10 of them had index procedures with non-anatomical graft re reconstructions. Four of them then had revisions of those graft reconstructions in the acute subgroup. In the chronic, it, the breakdown was seven and 14 respectively. Um, and so in conclusion, the biggest thing that this study was trying to look at was how anatomical graft reconstructions are superior to these suture repairs and non-anatomical reconstructions in both acute and chronic injuries. This was published in 2006. It was four years before the, um, before the paper that Tucker presented on was published that talks about this anatomical procedure. Um, and so really their biggest finding was that these suture repairs were really not that successful. Um, this is a case series study. So there's some limitations by this you know, retrospection and then um, they can't really evaluate all the different causes of multi-ligamentous recon failures. Um, additionally, one of the things that they were really worried about was this varus malalignment and failure of cruciate reconstruction. Um, one of the things that the authors really wanted to emphasize was that for these chronic varus malaligned knees to stage an HTO actually, and then have an ACL and PLC reconstruction after several months. Um, so their biggest focus was that these revisions that fail after the index operation were, would be less likely to fail if the index operation focused on simultaneous reconstruction of the cruciates and anatomic reconstruction of the PLC and an HTO when necessary. And then uh, the next slide sort of talks about the author's algorithm for treatment, um, which goes between the acute PLCs and the chronic PLCs. This has most likely been updated at this point, but um, from the paper, it sort of just looks at each structure um, and specifically what the author would work through to try and decide on a treatment algorithm. Nice, thanks, Tarek. Um, yeah, do you have anything to, to add to this? No, I mean, I think like, like Tarek said, I mean, I think this is important to consider even though it's a little bit older of a paper um, relative to what we've been talking about, you know, especially this algorithm. Um, I think it's important to you know, delineate between acute and chronic, uh, injuries. And then, um, you know, I think it's interesting, like a lot of these papers, uh, talk about, you know, repairs, but they actually talk about repairs in the context of also reconstructing some of the different ligaments. So repairing, you know, false ligaments, but then reconstructing the remaining like anatomic, um, structures that were damaged. And, uh, I think that that's, something that's important to consider. Um, and I think the last paper will talk a little bit about that. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, all of this is just good background and just kind of shows the importance of addressing all of the structures of the posterolateral complex uh, and the posterolateral corner before 
um, assessing for a successful um, uh, restoration of knee stability. Yeah, I agree. So let's, uh, since we have time now, let's just, we'll go back to this one is by Tyler. He's one of our other medical students that's not here, unfortunately. So we'll kind of go over this one as well. Um, you have, you want to go over this one yeah. uh, briefly? For sure. So this one is another paper by Dr. LaProd, Um, and it's a 2011 study from um, uh, JBJS that's looking at um, the treatment of these acute grade three, both isolated and combined posterolateral knee injuries. So we've kind of talked a little bit about background, but essentially um, these grade three posterolateral coronary injuries are treated acutely with surgery a lot of times. And the reason why is because waiting um, past that three week period has increased risks of ligament retraction. You're starting to get scar formation and adhesions. And then um, from a compression standpoint, you're starting to get entrapment of the common perineal nerve. Um, and then on top of all of that, there's concerns of failure and insufficient restoration of knee stability if you can't get to those structures properly. Um, and then Tyler did a good job here of just including, uh, you know, the definition of a grade three injury, and essentially saying that there's complete ligament disruption. Um, like we talked about before, there's greater than 10 degrees of rotational instability on the dial test. And then we also talked about this before, lateral opening on a various stress, so greater than 10 millimeters there. The methods of the study, so this was a prospective study of 30 knees over a three-year period from 2005 to 2008. Um, they wanted to look at patients that had physical exams, radiographic findings, um, and or MRI findings of PLC insufficiency. And uh, in order to assess for knee stability, they looked at IKDC scores, Cincinnati knee outcome scores, uh, one like hop scores, and measured knee motion. Um, so this is just some brief kind of overview of what they did in terms of their surgical approach. So if they had an associated ACL or PCL injury, they did, um, an open repair or reconstruction of the posterior complex. Um, and they did that prior to arthroscopy, if there was that associated injury, um, for the PLC, if they had an avulsion of the FCL and, or the PLT, they did a repair, any sort of mid-substance tear if the FLC or PLT was a reconstruction, and then um, if they had an FLC plus a popliteus tendon tear, they did a reconstruction regardless of the popliteofibular ligament. And on the right, they just have their um, uh, graphical representation of what they did there. Uh, so these figures, so on the left, um, there's a picture, so intraoperative imaging of a lateral capsule repair. Um, they have suture anchors there. Um, just demonstrating how they are uh, doing the repair. And then on the right uh, is one of the pictures by uh, Dr. Loraprod that's just demonstrating the graft placement um, and restoration of the PFL and the FCL. Um, for follow-up, so the rehabilitation protocol was six weeks of non-weight bearing. Um, they did passive and passive assisted range of motion exercises. And then after six weeks, they went on to weight bearing as tolerated. And uh, they let their patients out to six, 70 degrees of flexion maximum. Uh, and then at four months, they did light jogging and agility work. So some of these results here. So the mean time to surgery was 17 days. So again, like we said, the acute period is uh, less than three weeks. Um, and what this table is demonstrating all the way on the right, looking at ACL and PCL injuries. So they have all their patients 
listed. Um, and there were, there was a high proportion of, uh, reconstruction cruciate ligaments as well. And then in general, there were just a high amount of associated injuries. Um, so, and then they have, there are 25 participants and it looks like one of them had bilateral injuries. So left and right. In terms of outcomes, so the, this is just looking at the objective scores of injury, um, both at the preoperative and the final follow-up period. Um, I think the big takeaway here, uh, hopefully I'm capturing exactly what Tyler wanted to say, but I think what the big takeaway here is that there was successful restoration um, of uh, stability based on uh, these objective scores from preoperative period to final follow-up. So um, they graded... Uh, they graded the finding based on whether it was normal, A, all the way to D, which was severely abnormal. Um, and uh, so, for instance, at the lateral joint opening at 20 degrees, zero of the preoperative patients um, had a normal finding of lateral joint opening. And then at final follow-up, everyone had restoration. Um, and then kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, at preoperatively, 17 patients fell into the severely abnormal category. And then at final follow-up, none of them did. And that kind of goes down the line showing what happens. And essentially for each of these, you can see that at the final follow-up, a large proportion of these patients actually ended up being in the, at least in the normal category. Um, and then um, the vast majority, if not all of them, fell out of the severely abnormal category. And then these are just looking at uh, patient report outcomes. So again, looking at the IKDC subjective scores and the Cincinnati scores. And um, essentially, they showed that a final follow-up, there was no difference between the isolated PLC or combined injury with a cruciate injury. Um, and then, interestingly, they found that there were no subjective differences between the repair only or the reconstruction groups. Uh, they also recorded their complications. They said that one patient had failure of their PLC reconstruction at three months postoperatively. Um, and overall, there's a 94% uh, successful reconstruction uh, rate, which is quite high. So in conclusion, they said that acute surgical treatment of grade three PLC injuries, which was treated by repair and or reconstruction, uh, overall improved subjective and objective measures of stability. Um, and while the literature reports failure rates up to 40%, which Tucker talked about earlier, um, in this study, 94% of the reconstruction survived. So, I mean, I think, you know, it's an interesting paper. I think it's nice to see the um, measurement of these objective scores uh, because those are good ways to assess knee stability. Um, and it's pretty compelling evidence to say that, hey, whether or not you're doing your repair and or reconstruction um, or whether you're doing your reconstruction, you know, you're getting restoration of the knee stability. Um, you know, I, I'd like to see a little bit more in terms of like longer term follow-up. Um, and, but, but I think that this is, you know, a, a great paper. And I think all these papers by Dr. LaProd all have a lot of value. Um, so, and I think this is just another one of them. And it's nice that this is a prospective study as well that always adds more value to the paper. Yeah, I agree. And I think it was great that they showed, um, you know, patient reported outcomes, subjective outcomes on the same paper. Um, but I think, you know, overall, with all these papers we discussed about posterolateral corner um, injuries and reconstruction and reconstruction techniques, I think there's still a lot of room for, uh, like you said earlier, like long term follow up studies and see how these patients that are having reconstruction 
uh, perform, like see how they're doing long term, what their you know level of, of activity is compared to what they were prior to their injury. You know, it sounds like these reconstructing techniques are just consistently improving and are showing you know really good outcomes. But um, yeah, it'd be good to just continue to follow them long term and see what the outcomes are then. Anything else, guys? No, I mean, you know, I think for a topic that is uh, that we just don't talk about a lot in the real world setting, like we just don't see enough of it. I think that it's surprising how much research there is on this um, and how much we're able to discuss. I think that we will um, we will start to see more papers on this, I think, um, and it'll be interesting to see what direction this goes in. But I think overall, this was a good discussion and we went through some important papers. I like the fact that we had some biomechanical um, data in there as well, uh, because that puts things more into context. Um, it's important to talk about these, you know, more seldom discussed things, not only because it's good for, you know, academic discussion, but realistically stuff that's on board exams and it's stuff that's on like in training exams. So um you know, it's important to consider. And I think it's important not to forget that aspect, um, especially because uh, even in the clinical setting, I think a lot of attendings like to ask about some of these physical exam findings. Um, so overall, good discussion. I think good job, guys. Uh, good job, Tarek. Uh, pulling your weight as the as the lone medical student on today's podcast. You did a good job. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate <laughs> it. Yeah, Definitely so, a and, topic I knew very little about going into. Yeah. Um, well, that's that's the common theme. So I'm glad we, you know, we had the discussion over and hopefully provide some some insight to our listeners about these injuries and uh, repair and reconstruction of these. But um, all right, guys. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, that's it. For sure, man. Hopefully, hopefully we'll see each other in the next episode. We'll have a good one. Maybe we'll talk about something that's uh, a little bit more common and then we'll have our whole squad back together again so we can. Uh, have the whole A team participating in the normal conversation. Yeah. All right, guys. Appreciate it. Did you know 94% of U.S. healthcare facilities use locum tenants each year and typically pay more for them? This makes working locum tenants a smart financial move for you to help pay off student loan debt faster or make some extra income. It is even a smart career move. Locum tenants can improve your case volumes to help with credentialing. You can find jobs close to home, and CompHelp can even help you find your next full-time job, too. Explore all jobs now at comphealth.com.